Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. It's July the 7th, therefore we have entomologists with us. Don's here, Tyler's here. Don, with no sunglasses and his hat straight, Tom, that means it's early right. in the morning. He hasn't gotten into full character mode yet. He does have on short pants, though, which is a new leaf Don's turned over for 2023. He's trying to take up for the entomologist who's now the experiment station director, who would on occasion wear cutoff T-shirts and shorts. Well, those rice hip boots just work a little better with, with shorts on. They do. True. So does Tyvek. Oh, my God. Don't mention that. <laughs> That's why we spray in April. and Well, well I can't control that. Watch y'all, watch y'all spray in July and August. It's good for you. No, it's not. Tyler's here. Tyler's on my Christmas card list now because his wife bailed me out of a crack this week. She got me some good medications. Hopefully, I'm on the mend with this pesky little case of pneumonia that I've had. So thank you, Tyler. Yeah. Send her all the business you can. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Don, my question, I thought about this walking over here this morning. So I've been asking folks different versions of what's the craziest thing you've ever seen. So I thought, how can I ask Don that and make it a little bit unique? You've been looking at bugs for a long time now. We can even count it in decades. <laughs> I'm not that old yet. <laughs> Be nice. So, and you don't have to name any names or locations, but tell us about a time when you walked into a field and thought, uh-oh, in the context of bugs. There's two that come to mind. One was, it was in the 80s. <laughs> Which would be decades ago. How, <laughs> Early how old 80s, you, uh, late 80s. How old were you in the 80s, Tyler? I was uh, negative. <laughs> <laughs> Youngin. Yeah, I was, you know, I was actually in college, and I was working for a consultant that year, and I think he was in Washita Parish. And I looked up, and I'd been checking along, and we're in, he was in cotton. I looked up, and there was three coyotes stalking me. And then another time was over in Tinsaw. We ran a bear out of the field. I heard other people doing that over there. Yeah. I get plenty of little videos and pictures from Hank Jones these days of a bear in a cornfield or a bear somewhere else. And I'm like, in all the years I've rambled around the Mississippi Delta, I still have not seen one. Well, I'll give it its context. That was 18 years ago, so it was more uncommon then than it is now. I was thinking Don was going to have one like he stepped in the field and the, the top of the canopy was crawling or something. Uh, two years ago, I hit a, about a half acre patch of of uh, blister beetles in a bean field, and you know waist high plus beans. That is a rude awakening because those things are nasty. Yeah, we had that happen last year in in a stink bug trial. The whole test was eat up in blister beetles, and I made them. We just dropped it. We just did it anyways. Nobody got stung, but yeah. I mean, it was well incredible. You don't want to get one in your boot or in your shirt and crush and him, and then next down thing, your you know, pants. That, that's the one. That's where it eats you up. Let me show my ignorance. Is that a bite or is it like it's a fire ant sting? No, that's got a no. One of their defense mechanisms is they'll exude this compound. Cantheridin. Cantheridin out basically out their butt. And it is caustic. It will burn. 
it's the it's the same insect that you know the, the, the folks who grow hay for horses just have a zero tolerance for because that stuff will kill a horse in minute amounts. All right, Tom, I'm done. I learned something. <laughs> the blister beetle ex- <clears throat> exudes. You can, you can go home for the day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Don, tell us about worms. The bowworm calls are picking up. You know, Tyler's getting them. I'm getting them. Uh, had a guy say, you know, I'm in some short beans. I'm flushing malls everywhere, and I'm picking up larvae scattered here, there, and yonder in the field. It, it's time. Same, I mean, same thing. We're seeing them in cotton too. They're kind of trickling into both beans and cotton. So, and it's and when Don says it's time, it means corn's dried down week, week ten days, two weeks ago, and it's you know we're starting to see these emergence from these corn varieties, these hybrids. Every year we get the same deal on when do I treat and this and that. You know, not only in beans and cotton, and we have a pre-established threshold in beans. And beans can tolerate a lot of damage with no yield loss, particularly in these R3 to R4 growth stages and even R2 growth stages that we're in now. The other deal is I tell folks on beans, don't get freaked out by small larvae because for whatever reason, there's periods where they don't survive well in beans. I don't know whether they get tied up in all the hairs but, you know, you'll have a threshold or close to a threshold on Friday, check it Monday, and they're gone. So does that threshold change or vary then based on what growth stage we're talking about? Because no. you are hitting some spots where beans are hitting R5, early R5, and starting to move through some of those stages. It doesn't really change based on growth stage. We have that one, that dynamic threshold based on cost, control cost, and, then you know, the price you think you can get for the beans. My rule of thumb is the earlier it is, say if you happen to miss some, it's not the end of the world as it would not even close to it if it were like R5 and a half plus uh, because beans can compensate just tremendously for that, particularly at those earlier growth stages. So the threshold doesn't change. We might could, but, you know, we have not done that threshold based on growth stage. Growth stage. So then what is the threshold in soybeans? If you want a static threshold, we say 9 per 25 sweeps. But we also have that table in there that has the dynamic threshold based on what you your estimated cost to control them and what you think you can sell those beans for, which will make it float around some. Okay, so unpack that a little bit. Give us a couple examples of that. And, and I'm working off the top of my head. Yeah, that's fine. Just ballpark it. Uh, I think, you know, if you're assuming that it's like 18 to $20 for an application, including whether you, you the application costs by ground or air, and it's $10, $12 beans, that hits about nine, that's hits about the nine. I mean, as the bean prices go up, it's going to shift it down some. Right. And as that control cost goes up, it's going to shift it up. Okay. And we've had those tables out for years you know a number of years in the control guide and we've tweaked them last couple of years to kind of as the bean prices have moved up the other thing don that you mentioned that was unclear for me was you said small larvae so what's a small larvae like in my world small is certainly relative small pigweed versus a little pigweed can't be the difference in killing it or not oh you want a measurement 
Well, just a ballpark. Well, you know. When you said that, I was trying to envision what that looked like. You know, quarter-inch larvae, smaller, second-end star, late, early third-end star, which would be in that quarter to three-eighths inch and smaller. That's the ones, that, you know, we tend to see a lot of mortality in in beans. You know, particularly if you're not sprayed anything, you got a lot of predators, they can handle a lot of those. And then you just, the real tiny ones that just hatch, there's pretty high mortality on beans and all that, just something with a plant architecture. Now, you start getting half-inch plus larvae, you know, six, seven, eight, ten-day-old worms, mid-third to fifth-end star. Those are going to live more than likely uh, unless you get some disease blow in there. That's the ones that eat the most. Bowworm, the last larval stage or instar, eats more than all the other ones put together. So those th- are the most damaging. Bigger ones are the one we kind of key on in beans because of the way beans grow. And then, you know, cotton's a different animal. You know, assuming, just for example, we talk about non-BT cotton, we went after small larvae because as they got bigger and went down, they ate more squares and stuff, and it got harder to kill. Beans, they're a lot easier to manage because they move around a lot. They feed on leaves, and they'll move from pod, you know, one cluster of pods to the other. And I think it's an exposure thing is part of it as well. So you mentioned cotton. Tyler, one, tell us what we're seeing in the cotton crop. And then two, question that I have, talking about these small worms, and so maybe you choose to not make an application in a soybean field, but what about an adjacent cotton field? Is there ever any need to treat a soybean field to protect a cotton field? No, it's hard. You almost have to manage that field by itself. It's hard to justify spraying this field to protect that field, I, I just don't see that working. I, I'll okay. say. That's just a question that popped in my head. I've had huge egg lays in cotton fields and had bollworm bean trials across the road and never got bollworms in them. So I don't, from a soybean cotton standpoint, spraying one field to protect another, I, I don't see it, not for this particular pest. You had asked about what we're seeing in cotton. I think this was pretty good timing on on actually recording because we're just starting to see this these moths starting to fly in, and that's when we talk about egg lay. Now, in cotton, it's a little different. You know, we're not we're not waiting for worms to get big in cotton for multiple reasons. One, like Don said, they move down the plant. Another thing is when they get into fruit, you ain't touching them, not with any kind of insecticide. Now we're sitting here talking about cotton, like ninety nine percent of the cotton's not protected by bt but in a non-bt scenario we would be very very aggressive on spraying bollworms because you don't want them to get out of hand on you quick i guess the situation now is and i put out a blog article about this yesterday we've been growing delta pine 1646 for so long now and it's the last remaining bollgard 2 variety we've got it's the one cotton variety that we treat different from all the other cotton varieties talking to bear this past fall Jay Mahaffey told me this was probably the last year we'd be able to get any of that seed. So I think they finally phased it out. You know, we've been talking about phasing it out for, seems like, four or five years now. But, you know, we're treating that stuff on egg lay because of the cry, the BT cry resistance in bollworms. So we don't want those bollworms hatching out on top of a BT protein that they're resistant to because then they can, they can start feeding. And once they start feeding and getting into fruit, they're pretty much protected. 
Contrast that with Bolgard 3, just so everybody knows what we're talking and about. And Bolgard 3 and Wide Strike 3 and Twin Link Plus, that's all the big three. They've got those same cryoproteins or very similar cryoproteins, but we add in VIP3A, which is kind of the newest BT protein out for the control of Lepidoptera and, and cotton. You know, I've been hearing from folks, and I've been hearing from folks since last, I guess it was last year. Folks are seeing more damage in these cotton varieties than they have in the past and it's a lot of times it's superficial feeding and it don't mean anything and they got to eat to die but it does seem like you know they're doing a little bit more superficial feeding than they used to so folks are getting antsy but it doesn't mean it's resistance so I've heard from a couple of folks saying that folks are getting scared and they're, they're starting to treat Bolgard 3 the same way we treat Bolgard 2 or Wide Strike 3 the same way we treat Bolgard 2 and that's just simply not really necessary at, at this point in time. I guess the main thing I want to say is, I mean, we've got plenty of data um, over the past, I don't know how many years y'all been running this, this study, oh, but eight or nine, we could go back probably 10 years worth of data and show, I mean, we're making insecticide applications on cotton on egg lay that expresses that third gene is just not really economic right now. We don't see any kind of benefit. So then contrast the thresholds for Bolgar 2 versus the newers. Yeah, the so newer ones. that Bolgar 2, we've been treating it for a long time on a 20% egg lay. That's one egg per per plant, 20 plants out of 100 samples. That's not 20 eggs on one plant. That's not 20%, but one egg per plant out of 100 per 100 plant sample. You've got 20 plants with at least one egg. That's a 20% egg lay. Now that we're moving into some of these newer varieties, these newer cotton varieties, and, and losing sixteen forty six, now we're looking at larval or damage. Um, so if you've got larvae over an eighth of an inch, now that's important because we're seeing these neonates again. I talked about how neonates have to feed before they die. So if you see a bunch of neonates, you're just finding them before they're dead. So that's why we have that size. They're getting greater than an eighth of an inch. They're probably surviving. So that's that's really the first one. It's it's I think it's four percent live larvae, eighth of an inch, or a six percent damage fruit damage anywhere on the plant. So if you find six percent fruit damage across the field, you're you're at threshold. One thing you'll see sometimes on these larvae, they'll get a little bit taste of it, and they just won't eat it. You know, they don't like it. It makes them sick anyway. And then they sit there and just basically don't grow because they can't they don't want to eat it because it's not good for them and then some of them will get enough that it just kills them with them pretty quick and then a few they'll just kind of sit there and linger but they're not growing talk about then how corn plays a role and how those insects move from corn into cotton and how that could exacerbate or increase the potential development of resistance that's a good point, Tom. There's a way that we can kind of tell whether or not we're going to have a, I guess you'd say in quotations, a resistance type event because we're looking at corn that share a lot of those same BT proteins that cotton does. We're looking at that corn weeks ahead of that cotton being infested. So if we don't see any issues in that corn, we're probably not going to see any issues in that cotton. But corn is a huge producer of, and corn would call them corn earworm, but they're bollworm, same pest, same species. Corn produces a lot of bollworm, um, especially non-BT corn or corn that has two genes. If it has that third gene, that VIP gene, the same one that's in cotton, we don't see much damage at all. We don't see any, that's what I worked on in my dissertation was um, 
moth emergence from VIP expressing corn in it. We just don't see it right now. That's not to say it won't happen, but they've seen a few blips in parts of Texas, but they plant a lot more VIP corn than we do. Yeah, and I think they're way ahead of us. On I was going to say, they're, they're harvesting at this point. If you well, look at the videos on Twitter. Not, not just that. There's areas of Texas that are further along than us in the adoption of yeah, VIP yeah, corn. Yeah, that's what I mean. Which means that type of corn is a higher percentage of the corn in the environment. We're pretty low. We've remained pretty low somewhat fortunately. Corn for us, field corn, corn earworm, bowworm, whatever you want to call it, is not an economic pest for us under the conditions we have right now. And I get this question just about every year, and we we worked on this a while back. On average, we're looking at non-BT corn, one larvae, and typically that's what you're going to end up with because you'll have one that basically is dominant and kills the rest of them. We'll eat about 10 to 12 kernels. Well, it takes between 40 and 60 to reduce yield, damage to reduce yield. Well, the 10 or 12, one, we've shown that that's not enough. Two, we send more than that out the combine most of the time. So that's why we have told folks that it, we don't see an advantage of planting VIP corn here under our current conditions. And that has kind of helped us, that lower percentage of our acres being VIP, I think has helped us delay any resistance to the VIP proteins and bollworms. Yeah, and I've, I've put out trials, and I know Dimes looked at it too. There's no yield differences between those corn hybrids that have VIP and not VIP. Or BT versus non-BT doesn't. Now, I will back that by saying borers are still in the environment. You know, that's kind of the whole reason we've got BT corn in the first place is for corn borers. And bollworm kind of became a secondary issue because we're developing this resistance so that's one thing to keep in mind. That's why we've always said don't plant VIP corn, stick with one of the two gene varieties or the hybrids because you're still protecting from borers, but you're not selecting bollworm populations for the VIP resistance. I know we got a moving pest, but I was thinking about when y'all were talking about corn and cotton, different year, could there be scenario where planting date would influence Oh, yeah. Cotton a lot. So if we had a super, super early corn crop and maybe a moderately a moderately late planting date on cotton you or can, vice versa. You can get them out of sync like that. What we typically get into, and we've seen it actually more often than not in the last number of years, that corn planting gets stretched out. and You basically have a continuum of them coming out of corn going into cotton and beans and, and other crops that are come along after that. So a spread out corn planting window versus maybe a, a kind of a tight cotton yeah. planting window. Well, I mean, ideally for us is we plant our cotton on time and we plant corn in that early window and very discreet, very narrow window. And then if you have a peak, usually it's just one. Right. And you may miss it, but usually you don't. But you'll have just one peak instead of these things trickling out and it's just a constant egg lay going on over a 10 to 14 to 20 day period. Of, yeah. It's a lot easier to control the big peak than it is just a one that just kind of straggles out. Because 
I think, and, and it was an issue in Bulgard too. And I remember mm-hmm. when I was in grad school, folks would always call Angus and say, we're running sub 20% egg lay, but this has been going on for a week. And there you're constantly seeing eggs, but you're not hitting threshold. Well, those eggs are turning into live larvae and that live larvae is turning into damage. Yeah. So it may, it does throw a wrench into things. On the Bulgard 2 situation, we've been spraying diamides for a while now. Diamides do good because they've got a lot of residual. I think in a situation, I don't know what y'all have recommended in the past, but in a situation, I think, where we know that we've got spaced out corn plant windows when you start seeing eggs, depending on what rate you run, you may get two weeks out of a diamide spray, and it, it may be better to be early and be aggressive on those, on those egg lays yeah. in a situation like that. We've looked at diamides for years, and right when we say diamides, pretty much we're talking about chlorantronilaprole now. Uh, we'll say it. Well, <laughs> Prevathon, Vanacor, I don't know how much Prevathon is still in the supply yeah. chains. They're moving to Vanacor, which is a more concentrated formulation. Particularly in cotton, it seemed like efficacy was better if you were early as opposed to late and let those small larvae either hatch into it or feed into it compared to bigger larvae. Beans entirely different animal because of, you know, way the worms act on a plant. But it seemed like, you know, you can always be too early. But being a little early was seemed all pretty much seemed better than being a little late. So what's your one take home message right now for soybeans, Don? Well, this stuff is expensive and just don't jump the gun. Okay. That would, that would be my deal. Tyler Cotton? <laughs> Don't jump the gun is a good uh, good one for me, too, especially with these three-gene cotton varieties. Follow those thresholds because data showing right now we're not seeing a benefit. Don't spray eggs. Just let that protein work and save that money. Tom, I feel like we got the title for the podcast episode, Don't Jump the Gun. So let me ask this. Do you see a difference between making those applications in cotton and beans because you do have so many folks wanting to make an automatic fungicide application, and more often than not, they're piggybacking that with an insecticide? Every insecticide, no matter what it is, has X amount of residual, even under perfect conditions. Well, when you put it out, that clock starts. Well, if you're, say it's got a 10-day residual, and you put it out and you don't have any insects show up till day seven, well, seven days of that residual is gone. I know it can be awful tempting to piggyback stuff, but if there's nothing there, I feel like you're wasting your money, particularly at something that's a 12 to $14 an acre shot. I mean, if it's a buck fifty, eh, that doesn't break the budget. But two diamine applications in beans, uh, that hurts the budget pretty good. And I'm not sure that we've seen the last of red bands. Yeah, I was going to say, that's that's two diamine shots before stink bugs even show up. And that was the one that popped into my head because we don't know what that population is yeah. going to do from here for the remainder of the summer. Yeah. yeah. Now, these early beans may miss them, but we got some late beans. I would suspect that we're going to deal with them in, the, in these late beans. Gentlemen, thank you. We appreciate your time this morning. It's always good to sit and talk to you, and we know it's, you know, bug Mageddon season. It's not too hot today, though. Yet. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> True. True. It's early. Thanks, fellas. Thanks. Thank you. 
The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.